0: Brilliant at it, but Ezra is history, and the document of Ezra is a kind of historical um, document of the return of God's people, both physically, as into Jerusalem, and the return of them in their relationship with God. And at the peak of Israel's history, um, I don't want that. Um, um, at the peak of Israel's history. We had, um, King Solomon was leading them, so echoey, and um, they were very prosperous and successful. They had a good relationship with each other, a good relationship with their surrounding areas, and a really, really good relationship with God. When Solomon died, it all started to spiral. The people drifted in their relationship with God. They started worshipping other things. They drifted in their relationship with each other, and we had civil war. And after time, after repeated rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, God allowed the surrounding superpowers of the day to, to defeat Israel. You see, Israel thought that they were completely untouchable. They treated the temple where God dwelt like a bit of a lucky charm. As long as the temple was in place, they were going to be okay. And despite warning after warning from prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, they would not change. They treated these people like they were liars and troublemakers. And so eventually we have the three waves of attack... Here we have the Babylonians, the superpower of the day. They come in, they sweep through, and there are three different waves where he comes. In the first one, he takes Daniel. It's kind of the nobles and the royals and people like that. And you can read about that in Daniel chapter 1. In the second one, he takes the king. And in the third one, he completely destroys, decimates, burns, levels, the temple, all that they've put their hope in, all that they've taken refuge in, this kind of lucky charm that they've been hanging on to is completely gone. And they are stunned at this point that God has allowed this to happen to his people, the people he loves. They're just left with that question of why? Why would God allow something so horrendous to happen to us because it was completely brutal okay they starved them you can imagine them holed up in jerusalem they're starving to death they turn them out of their homes imagine today you go home you are you cannot enter your home your home is gone someone else has moved into your house Instead of the lands being theirs, it's no longer theirs. They've got to buy food and buy drink. In Lamentations, it tells us all about these horrendous stuff that happened to them. Women raped and the princes are hung up um, and murdered. The elders uh, show no respect. The young men are forced into slavery. And in Psalm 137, we read this. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And you can imagine it, can't you? They're asked to sing the songs of Zion, the famous songs that these soldiers have heard of, were well, their songs of joy and celebration. And it's tormenting them. It's horrendous. And in the middle of all this devastation and loss and murder and ruin, There are two key promises that we've heard of already since looking at Ezra. The first one from Isaiah about a coming king. In fact, he's named who will rebuild this temple that's destroyed. And the second one from Jeremiah, speaking of a promise to bring them back. And that he's got plans for them. And that what he's doing is not to harm them. But it's for good, and it's to give them a future. So after the time in Babylon, King Cyrus does arrive. The next superpower is on the scene. And under the new kind of ethnic uh, charter, as it were, the new empire policy regarding the ethnic minorities, they're given the right to return. And they've got to remember they're returning to a land devastated, and their homes are occupied by other people. And that's the situation they're going into. But they do have the right to to return. And the first thing they do, as we heard from John last week, is they start this building fund. (laughs) They chuck all their money in. And instead of building the walls first, they start with the altar. Because they've got to come back. You know, all this is about sin. All this that's happened to them is about their utter rejection of God. So they need to come to him first and repent. They've got to sacrifice for the sins of the nation, so that their sins are remembered no more. And that's one of the promises they receive, I haven't put it up, but that when they return, God will remember their sins no more. And so here, we've we've had it read for us, we're not going to read the passage, but if you want it in front of you, you can open it, Ezra. I'm going to, ret- going to be referring to it. Um, So it's Ezra chapter 3, and it's verse 7. So there's peas at the end of the Bible. So if you want one, just kind of nudge the person next to you. Otherwise, just listen. Okay, so what do they do? They built the altar. What's the next thing they do? Well, they get on with it. They employ stonemasons and carpenters. They order the materials they need. The priests study the plans, and they get ready to supervise it. And after seven months, in the second month, of the, seven, of the second year, they start the build. And it looks pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But interesting... I haven't got any more. Okay, there we go. But interesting. There are a few interesting things about this. Firstly, do you remember when they came out of Babylon? It mirrored coming out of Egypt. <laughs> well, when they came to build, they mirrored the first build. Okay? So stuff like... They sent food, drink, and oil to Sidon. Well, that's exactly what Solomon, who built the first temple, did. And he floats and and um, tyre and Sidon—they float the logs down to them. Exactly what happened in the first build. They start in the second month of the second year. Exactly what happens in the first build. And if you want to look that up, it's in Second Chronicles chapter two. But I'm not going to do that now. But it is not the same. So much of it is the same, isn't it? You can read these two passages almost and you'll see he did this, they did this. He did this, they did this. They're trying to do exactly what the word of God tells them, to follow it. Because remember, this is not just about returning to a land, this is returning to God. But it's not the same. The first temple, have a little look at that, was a massive government building project. It was huge. It had vast foundations that they cut from the surrounding mountains. Huge rocks that, you know, that a staggering size, like the pyramid sort of rocks. The ones that you kind of go, how on earth did they move that? This was the first one. They had the logs from Lebanon floated down, but they were covered in gold. And there were precious jewels. It was magnificent. The building was something you would just go in and you would just be utterly in awe of this because of its vastness. And they wanted to show the magnificence of their God. This was for Yahweh. It was about his power and it was about his blessing. But the building they're going to build now is not like that. It's not going to be lavish. It's not going to be large. It's not authorised by the greatest Israeli king that ever was. It's authorised by a Gentile king in authority over them. And why is that? Because of their sins. God can't even use them. He's had to use an outsider. And this is what Israel's been reduced to. The temple of gold replaced by the temple of wood. And it's cost them everything. It just seems pitiful compared to what it was. And in contrast to the lavish government wealth of Solomon, they have given according to their ability out of poverty, almost out of poverty. And in contrast to the two hundred thousand people that worked on the original temple. There's 42,000 of them clubbing together to have a go. And when they see the foundations, as Rach said earlier, when she asked some people, they came, you know, they wept at what they saw, comparison. Because they'd seen what it was like before. They estimate that about 800 people were living in the Persian Empire. Okay. There you go. (laughs) They found remains of them in Babylon, across the whole empire. But only 42,000 chose to come back. This small remnant to see what God will do with their future. And that means, roughly, 758,000 as a psalmist wrote, had forgotten Jerusalem, forgotten their first love. Those that stayed, their hearts were now there, not in a pile of rubble, a forgotten era. They settled for what they had. They saw no hope in going back. Perhaps they were affluent, perhaps the business was going well, perhaps they'd started education, perhaps they'd married there, their family was there, they don't want to uproot them. And also their true home was something for many of them that they'd never seen, and you've probably discussed that in house group. They were immersed in Babylonian culture. They were immersed in the values of the people. And all they had was the promises of a book. And some testimonies of the elderly amongst them. And they'd learned to worship God in different ways. So surely these guys that went back to Jerusalem were kind of like the fundamentalists, the extremists, the kind of hardcore for God. They'd left everything. I mean, all that's back there is rubble, bandits, and uh, unfortunately that rhymes now, trouble. <laughs> but... You know, you can see the dilemma, can't you? To go or not to go. But God had said he's going to bring them back. God had said to return. And these few were willing to go, to leave their jobs maybe, their homes that they built, their family, their education, the infrastructure of a nice city that works for everyone and they know what they're doing, for a promise. That's what they're going back for. They're going back for a promise and there is hardly anything to see. And I guess we can ask, can't we, at this point, just, you know, what would you have done? Would you have gone? You've got a great life with your family. You've been there. Maybe you grew up there. You don't know anything about this place at all. Just stories and songs Of the elderly amongst you. And then the ones that do get back, once they do arrive, they start to build. It doesn't actually look that impressive. Perhaps this wasn't such a great idea after all. And when you look at it, what can this bunch of people actually do? They're surrounded by people that don't want them. You know, you've got a question at this point is this really what God wants for us? So how did they respond? We, we had the two people, didn't we? We had the criers and the excitements. Well, they carried on, they went through, they got robed up, they put on their vestments, jewels all over it, everything that had come back from Babylon. The musicians were set up, the people were set up, they, um, you know, the foundations were laid, the promise had been fulfilled, and they said the refrain from the psalm, He is good. And love his love endures forever. He is good and his love endures forever. And these people know this firsthand, don't they? It's a declaration of what they personally know to be true. This is not just something that's sung. They know that God is true to his promises. He's not just good, he's perfectly good. And his love, and that's his covenantal love, the stuff about promise, endures forever that is true and even the word foundation that they laid comes from God has set it showing they believe that this is all of God and this is the beginning it doesn't look much but here is a small nation that believe God's promises they believe that God has chosen them they believe that he loves them And he believes that he's going to bless them in the future. And all the people gave that great shout to the Lord. It was like a victory shout. This is like something that you would shout after a battle. Say that Israel went into battle and they won. It would be like a victory shout of God has done it. He has achieved it. Because the foundations had been laid. The kind of impossible has been achieved. But it's also really easy, as I was thinking about this, it's easy to sing songs. We've sung loads today. And as I was sort of listening to them, I thought, yeah, they really fit. So I really mean what I'm singing. You know, am I really taking this in? Because here we've got two groups. Let's see what it says. Verse 12, I'll bring that up. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the formal temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. There's two groups of people here. It's not old and young. The writer is drawing our attention here to the leaders, okay, the elders amongst them. And you can imagine the emotion of this celebration. We're thinking about it a bit earlier. The utter joy that God's rescued them. The relief that they are back here. That they have hope and a future. But at the same time, there's got to be hurt. Like when they, uh, to Twin Towers, when they laid the foundations there of what was going to be built, there was so much raw emotion as it came back to them what had happened. And the loss, you know, it's like a fresh dose of it. You can imagine the people as they see these foundations have been laid. There's got to be some of that going on there as well. This place where many people would have taken refuge, believing that nothing could touch them. So that might have been why they were crying. Or it could have been gratitude. Have you ever been caught up... And you're just so overwhelmed with the gratitude that God has given you again. That you cannot believe that he has made something happen again. It was so good the first time and you can't believe that he's been so merciful and good and giving. That he's given you it again. How is this even possible that God can be so good? And it could have been that. But it says when they saw the foundations. So but could it be, also, in all of that, a moment of doubt? This is kind of a reality check, isn't it, of what's humanly achievable. They look around, they see the people, they see the situation, they see the prospects of what is going to be built, what is going to be humanly achieved, the fruit of their efforts, a temple a fraction of the size. And really what kind of future have they got here? A future of poverty? Are they really free? And it can be interesting, can't it, when sometimes we start to build things, we can get really excited at the beginning. We've got lots of people involved maybe in our projects and we're all working in the same direction. We're all excited. But maybe we hit a milestone or we've been doing it for a while and we look at what we've achieved and it's not, quite what we'd hoped. We're not as far on as we wanted or it hasn't quite worked out. It's a little bit disappointing or we feel it's a complete failure in fact. It's nothing like what we were hoping for. But I think it's important here to look, remember, you know, what did God think about this? Was he more impressed with the first temple or the second temple? And obviously neither. Neither. In fact, when we look at what Jesus says about stuff, do you remember if we look in the, in the New Testament about the woman he gives out of poverty and the man who gives out of wealth, he says the woman who gives out of poverty is better because she gave all that she had. And these guys have definitely given out of poverty. It may not look as impressive, but God's interested in the heart. And we look at Mary and Martha, and we see Martha rushing around. She seems to achieve so much more. She's got the dinner done. It's all ready. But Mary, who seems to have achieved very little, is honored. And the woman who anoints Jesus' head puts the perfume, and Judas goes, us too much money. And then we might think, oh, no, 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 no. This is great because she gave so much money. Well, that's not what's good about it. What's good about it is that she loved Jesus. That was about our heart again, wasn't it? It was about our heart's attitude to what was going on. And that's it for us, isn't it? Our heart response to what's going on. It's about what we want to achieve from it. It's not the size or the magnificence, but it's about what's in here. What's going on in our hearts. Often we humanly look at something, when we shouldn't be humanly looking at it, what's what's important is the people and God, their heart response. So, in whatever way they expressed their emotions that day, and there's been mixed emotions, I think it's great that they took the risk to go back. They held the promise. They'd not forgotten Jerusalem. They'd not forgotten their true home. They didn't stumble because of fear at this point. They built these foundations. And they longed for that day when God's presence would fill The temple would be among them again. And of those 800,000, those 42,000 had the guts to go and do it. And I wonder how you would have reacted that day in front of this pitiful foundation if you knew what the one looked like before. Would you have been tempted to think, to be humanly looking at it, thinking, is this what we can achieve? Is this God's hope for us? Is this a future? Looking a bit, not sure what's going on. But remember, out of that tiny group of people came the most amazing thing ever. Jesus. And it might not look much then, but out of them came Jesus. That was God's ultimate plan. So I want us just to take a minute now to let God speak to us. And I was thinking of some different things that we might be kind of feeling. And the first one is maybe you're someone who's taken a lot of risks. You believe the promise of Jesus. But perhaps now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, it's not quite what you expected. You've given so much. You've worked so hard. But What now? Perhaps you're feeling in that place of disappointment and you want to give up. Or perhaps in the past you were someone who took risks. You stepped out, you followed Jesus, but it's been so tough. It's been so hard. And now you've stopped. In fact, it's been years. Let's ask God today to renew our faith in the promises that he's given to us. And finally, perhaps you're like some of those that didn't go. Life's been too painful. It's hard to believe that God has got good for you. Well, God extends his promise that he knows the plans that he has for you. They are plans to prosper. They are not plans to harm. And he has a hope and a future for you. And then the final verse that I'll leave us with said, no one could distinguish between the sounds of shouts of joy and the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. And here the writer's setting us up for what's coming. When you make a lot annoyed about what God's doing, you can be sure that some opposition is going to come your way. And we'll find out about that next week.